there's a saying that to give a good talk, you have to tell people what you're going to tell them. And tell them. Then tell them what you just told them. <laughs> Here's the take-home message. All meditations share their basis in a natural function of your mind and body, which is just waiting there to be <laughs> cultivated, honed, and employed. This is similar to exercise. You have muscles, you're born with muscles. You can let them sit there, or you can cultivate your muscles and make your body strong. It's similar to your mind. You're born with a mind, and you can use it, or you can run for political office. <laughs> so meditation is the cultivation of a natural function of our mind and body. That's going to be the focus of my talk. A couple of years ago, I gave a talk about Vipassana meditation, and then I was invited back to the same university to give another talk. And the invitation the second time was from a wide group of university sponsors, including things like religious organizations of other of various kinds of religions. So instead of just focusing on Vipassana, I changed my topic to the universal features of all meditation, hoping that that would be a topic of interest to a wide variety of people, including people who might have some uh, name for their own religion. I will talk a bit about some of the, the particular features of Vipassana, but my theme is all, all meditations share this uh, natural function, and all meditations have that ground in common. When you give meditation a particular name, like Vipassana, the reason you give it that name is because it's slightly different in certain particular ways. So I'll go into the ways that Vipassana is unique. In some ways, it's different than the other meditations. It's like a family where everybody in the family, all brothers, sisters, mother, fathers, even cousins, share some genes, and that's how you know they're in the same family. At the same time, everybody's unique. So Vipassana shares many genes with all meditation. It also has its unique features, and I'll discuss both. I want to be clear, I'm not saying all meditations are the same thing. Each meditation is different, but they all share a common ground. Let's look at the natural function. What is the natural function that is meditation? We all know what muscles are. We all know why we exercise. We all know what our minds are and why education is a good thing for our minds. But meditation, up until recently, was not widely known at all. In fact, when I first started giving talks about meditation, not to mention when I first started practicing meditation, it was essentially unknown. It was considered exotic or weird or foreign. And so uh, our culture has created a situation in which this natural function was never properly identified and cultivated. It's as if we went to some place in the world where there were no education, or as if we went to some places in our own country where people don't exercise. So. Um, 
we now have the opportunity to be, you could say, educated or well exercised with this natural function. The natural function, first I'll give it a name. I I'm, uh, don't know this audience, so I don't know uh, what uh, kind of studies people have done or are doing. So I'll use a technical term and then I'll make the technical term fit into common English. So meditation fits into the larger system of homeostatic regulators that define all of our life. So all life, whether you're talking about an amoeba, a little tiny thing, whether you're talking about a giant whale, or all of us have a process by which our bodies and minds are brought towards a middle path. The middle path and the regulation of function towards the middle path is one of the key definitions that separates life from non-life. Let's take some examples. We all have a temperature that runs about 98.6. Actually, everybody is slightly different than 98.6, but pretty close to that within a degree or two. If your temperature goes very high, 102, that's called having a fever. 104, that's a very high fever. Above that, you're likely to die. We can only exist within a certain temperature range. Same thing if you go out and uh, run on a rainy winter day, you know well enough to be worried about hypothermia and you dress properly to stay warm and dry. Our body temperature can go down. There's a limit to how far it can go down. So there's a homeostatic regulator uh, moving our temperature towards a middle path. And the middle path is not in a single exact point, but it's a general area around 98.6. Let's look at our blood pressure. Everybody is educated about blood pressure today. Everybody knows you need a blood pressure that's not too high or too low. If your blood pressure goes very high, you're in danger of having a stroke. High blood pressure can be fatal. If your blood pressure goes too low, you're in danger of going into shock. Low blood pressure can be fatal. So uh, a healthy body regulates blood pressure around a certain middle ground. Now, the regulation is dynamic. It is not static. We're not machines, and we don't have an exact set point. We're not exactly like a thermostat, but we're analogous. We have a middle path, even though we don't have an exact middle set point. Everything in life has some regulation. There's nowhere in our body that things happen in a wild or unregulated manner. And everything in our minds actually is also regulated. However, the regulation, if it's not cultivated, if it's not uh, a proper, uh, properly consciously honed regulation, then the regulation is more loose and less effective. In the same way that if you uh, just eat any food you want, exercise very little or any time you want, your blood pressure will not be as well regulated as if you eat properly and exercise properly. Let's look at the regulation of our mind now. We're moving to the homeostatic 
regulation that always exists in our mind to some degree, but which meditation is intended to cultivate. Supposing an event happens in your life and it makes you quite angry, then you might feel anger for quite a period of time and you might feel an intensity of anger. But as that anger sits inside of you, it becomes dysphoric. That means not feeling good. You feel stressed by that anger, unhappy that you are so angry. And there's a tendency to try to figure out what to do to reduce that anger. If you're a, a more externalizing person, you might say, I better go back and shout at the person who made me angry. If you're a more internalizing person, you might say, well, I shouldn't be so angry. It's only a passing incident. You do something to try to regulate that anger, whether you're a meditator or not. Same thing, actually, if you feel good, we do the same thing. We downregulate some of our good feeling. You feel very good, you're planning a vacation, and that makes you uh, quite excited. You're on the web looking for the right hotel, right airplane tickets. At the same time, you have to go to work next morning. So you downregulate the excitement about your vacation. You say to yourself, well, I'll go back online at five o'clock when I get out of work, look for more beaches or hotels when I come home. So we have an ability to, to some extent to regulate our thoughts and our emotions. We can turn off thoughts like thinking about your vacation. We can turn down emotions like anger. But we don't learn a systematic cultivation of how to do so. We, we learn to do that in a rather chaotic and haphazard way. Almost all well-educated people have had no education in this topic. Almost all not well-educated people have not had any education on this topic. Typically, we leave it up to our family and up to our own uh, random thrashing about through the world. So meditation is the systematic cultivation homeostatic regulation of thoughts and emotions. And it fits a pattern that all body functions have, which is to uh, re-regulate themselves towards an approximate middle. When I told a friend of mine that I was going to give a talk on the universal features of all meditation, this friend is a very advanced meditator, she said to me, how do you know what all meditation is? Of course, I don't know what all meditation is. So when I say all meditation, I mean most commonly known meditations share these features. So let's look at what meditation consists of. Typically, a person sits down, closes their eyes, and tries to focus on something that is given to them by some teaching or teacher as the proper focus for meditation. When you're focusing on something, your thoughts drift away from that focus. Typically, we feel we can focus well when a stimulus is very vivid. We go to movies, I know my wife and I, being the generation we are, we go to the movies, we sit down, watch the previews, and we're already traumatized. <laughs> Hundreds of cars are falling off cliffs. <laughs> Why is that of interest to people? And the answer is because you can focus on it. 
it takes you away from your worries and fears and inadequacies and doubts. And it gives you something you can focus on that you know is quite meaningless. So an intense focus is easy to focus on. But what about a subtle focus? When you meditate, you sit down, close your eyes. So meditation is also homeostatic regulation, the natural function of the mind and body, within the condition of inwardness. It's a special condition we create to do what we call meditation. And the condition is you're within yourself. And it's harder to concentrate on anything that is relatively more subtle, quiet, and less colorful, noisy, and attractive as we generally focus on. Today we have this relatively new phenomenon of people constantly focusing on their cell phones. And uh, on the one hand, it's very distracting, but on the other hand, everybody recognizes there's a certain comfort that comes from that because you're focusing on something. Of course, it's very uh, changeable focus and it doesn't give you true uh, self-regulation. So now you're meditating, your eyes are closed, you're focusing on something that's not very noisy. In Vipassana, I'll describe it in a little more detail in a minute. You focus on the sensations of your own body. It's hard to maintain that focus. And so your mind drifts away. You lose focus. You find yourself thinking or feeling something, or both thinking and feeling something. You have a memory. Maybe you're still angry at that person, so the anger comes up again. Or maybe you're still thinking about your vacation. Thoughts of the vacation come up again. And then you remember that you're meditating and bring your mind back to the focus. Let's say it's body sensations as in Vipassana. So there's a two-step process. One is the drifting away from the focus, and the other is a restoration of the focus. Almost all meditation is based upon that cycle. And that cycle is exactly the same thing as our temperature. You walk into a room like this, your body temperature instantly drops. It's too cold in here. <laughs> and then you have a regulator to re-raise your body temperature. But you have something else. You have added adjustments. So you put on a fleece or you put on some extra clothing. And you try to give your thermoregulators help. But if you don't give your thermoregulators help, they'll still be able to re-regulate your temperature to some degree. Not absolutely. If you stay in this room for a full hour, it'll be hypothermic. <laughs> and it'll be up to the whole you to offer you treatment. <laughs> so when you meditate, you're putting yourself in a condition of inwardness where there's no external help. You're not going to get a movie with burning cars falling off cliffs. Instead, you're going to cultivate your own skill in returning your attention to a focus, a focus that's not overly easy to focus upon. And at the same time, your mind will drift away and be called back. In the same way that in daily life, our temperature changes all the time. It's never 98.6. It's always slightly higher because it's a hot day, slightly colder because of a cold day, slightly higher because you put on too many clothes, too many fleeces, partly colder because you are just in a t-shirt. 
And so as temperature in your body is changing all the time, blood pressure in your body is changing all the time, and focus is changing all the time, whether you're meditating or not, but even when you're meditating, your focus is changing. But in meditation, there's the systematic cultivation of the attempt to restore focus. So it's a practice, you could say, in focusing. But the goal is not to focus perfectly because there is no perfect homeostatic regulation. We don't want our temperature exactly at 98.6 because we do want it to fluctuate as we go in and out of different conditions. Your blood pressure needs to go up if you're going to walk upstairs. Your blood pressure can go down if you're lying in bed. And so our meditation is a fluctuation and the movement away from focus is just as valuable, though unintended, as the movement back to focus. The movement away from focus provides another clear benefit of meditation. The first clear benefit is you're practicing how to regulate uh, a relatively dysregulated thoughts and feelings. Relatively dysregulated means you're a little more angry at this person than you want to be. You're a little more uh, obsessed with your vacation than you want to be. And you're bringing your thoughts or feelings back. And the straying away has value. The straying away is a vision of who you are. Of course, in the examples I used, if you're angry at somebody and you're just thinking about that anger, it's not particularly notable. If you're thinking about your vacation, it's not particularly notable. But if you meditate in a systematic way, for example, if you were to go away for a meditation course for 10 days and you were to try to meditate continuously for 10 days, as happens in a Vipassana meditation course of 10 days, you would find that your mind would drift away from the known daydreams, fantasies, thoughts, and feelings. And it would drift into new territories. In the back of our mind are things that are more varied than those obvious focus, uh, foci of our mind that we're quite aware of. So there's the conscious mind and there's the less conscious mind. And the less conscious mind is extremely rich. We think of ourselves as a unified entity, as a self, but actually uh, we're less like a single mammal and we're more like a menagerie. We're more like a zoo. And in this zoo are many animals with many thoughts, and that's us. We're very uh, filled with life. So if you meditate and in a condition which that fits the term systematic, over a period of time, you find in yourself an enormous wealth of material. And you become familiar with a richer, more complicated self than you were familiar with. So you're getting two effects. First, you're getting the capacity to focus or the practice of focusing. And second, you're getting a richer sense of self. Now, almost all meditation is based upon the idea of 
observation, without criticism. Of course, if you sat down with a judgmental mind and you started to meditate, you would simply become angry or annoyed or frightened at yourself as this menagerie, this zoo that is inside of you, took off. So meditation is also based not only on focusing, not only on the drifting of mind away from focus and the recall, but it's also based upon a third feature, which is observing what's going on without editing, without criticizing, without commenting, doing your best not to have preferences, not to like, not to dislike anything you think or feel. Of course, we all have preferences, and so preferences come up, and there's a kind of an irony. There's no attempt to think, but you do think. There's no attempt to feel, but you do feel. And there's no attempt to judge, but of course, some judgment may enter in, and you observe that drift towards judgment, and that is another feature of your mind that you observe and uh, try not to persevere in. The main reason that people meditate, generally speaking, is to find inner peace. Of course, people meditate for many reasons. Sometimes people meditate for uh, gaining more focus or some other reason. But generally, if you look at why people come to a meditation course, they'll say something like, I'm seeking more peace with myself, more harmony with other people, uh, feeling less distressed. And the cultivation of inner peace is heavily resting upon those three items that I talked about, that is, learning to focus your mind, having your mind drift to its wealth and richness and coming to know yourself in that wealth and richness and learning to observe your mind both in its concentrated and non-concentrated states without observing, uh, without criticizing, so that you become integrated, self-integrated. That means you know yourself well and there's less conflict within yourself. There's less criticism, there's less hidden, more known, more accepted. That those are key factors in the cultivation of inner peace. There are, however, uh, quite a few other ways that this uh, process of meditation works. Another thing to think about in meditation is the way it is activating your body and not just your mind. So, so far I've described meditation as if it were a mental process. Of course, it's partly a mental process for sure. It's also a physical body process. There's a couple of ways in which meditation is a bodily process. If you're doing Vipassana meditation, the focus of the meditation is your body. Therefore, you're integrating your mind and body and observing your body as the focus of your mind. So the integrative process that I described where you come to terms with your thoughts and feelings, learn how to judge them, may also be going on with your body, with its varying feeling states, sensations, pleasures, and pains. 
But there's another way that meditation activates your body, which is typically, which should be very obvious, but is typically overlooked. And that way has to do with the fact that most meditation consists of sitting still. That seems obvious. But sitting still is a very hard thing to do. If we had cameras here and uh, they were trained on me or on you, we'd see that no one is sitting still, everyone moves. And the movement of the body is natural and spontaneous. If you were to be put in the circumstance of being a third grade teacher, <laughs> you would find that sitting still is the hardest thing a human being can do. <laughs> it's entirely a challenge. It's a developmental challenge. And uh, third graders cannot easily sit still. And they find their difficulty sitting still is actually somewhat unpleasant. And as children mature and develop the capacity to sit still, this is generally a comfort. And so meditation cashes in on the comfort that we feel when we can regulate our musculature. So the actual term for that is neuromuscular inhibition. Our muscles have the tendency, a drift, to put themselves into motion. There's nothing wrong with that, but it does make us feel that they, our muscles or our nerves, are somewhat in command of us. And reversing that process is part of development, and particularly in our culture, which is a sitting still culture. And learning to inhibit the spontaneous activity of the musculature makes you feel you are more in command of your body. Once you do that, your meditation gains another dimension as well, and that is a dimension of focus of the mind, plethora of the zoo of your thoughts and feelings, ability to observe yourself without judgment, and the ability to regulate your body into a still state. Now, if you regulate your body into stillness and stay still over some period of time, different amount for different people, and depends how you're sitting, eventually that will become uncomfortable. And it will become uncomfortable for various reasons. Some blood vessel may be slightly crushed and your, your foot will fall asleep, or some muscle may be slightly tense, and so there'll be some a reactive spasm to the muscle tension. The more you meditate, the more you may learn to sit still to some extent. It's a practice. And to some extent, you can reduce some of the pains by learning to sit in a proper position and to rest your muscles. But that's relative. As we discussed at the start, all things in the body are movements back towards the middle. So if you're sitting still for a long period of time, actually that's a movement away from the middle. You're keeping one static pose going over time. So is there any advantage to that? Well, it depends how long you sit, and it depends what the goals of your meditation are. 
But one ironic benefit of learning to sit still is that it's uncomfortable. I already said that sentence, but I added one ironic benefit. So what's the benefit of becoming uncomfortable? There is a benefit. Just like when you are meditating and different thoughts are arising on your mind and you're calling your mind back to a focus, many of the thoughts that arise on your mind are uncomfortable. For example, I use the example, you're angry at someone and as you're meditating, you keep thinking, that guy's a jerk, I hope I don't have to see him at work again. If I do, I'll probably tell him off. And so angry thoughts are there in your mind and it feels somewhat uncomfortable. You wish you were less angry and you use your meditation to try to focus on your body sensations, not on your anger. By doing that, you're learning to regulate your anger. You're not trying to get rid of it. You're not repressing it. You're just, you're not judging it. But you're learning to refocus. The same is true with physical discomforts. Physical discomfort rises up because you're sitting still. No one is uh, encouraging you to sit still for an unreasonable period of time. But for a reasonable period of time, you feel some discomforts. And our natural tendency is to try to get rid of those discomforts. And um, our culture does have a problem of people who are not used to facing discomfort. And so learning to be non-judgmentally observant of some degree of bodily discomfort is one of the benefits of neuromuscular inhibition that accompanies meditation. So now we've gone through a cascade of potential positive effects of meditation. From these descriptions, however, it should be quite clear that meditation has certain limits and certain things where it may not be advisable. Let's look at where the limits, some of the limits are. One of the big trends of our day, which I would guess is quite prominent here in Seattle and also at, at uh, UW, is that mind and body are integrated. That's a new trend because in, as Western science developed in the Renaissance, it developed alongside of a belief that mind and body were separate. We had, it was thought we had bodies and minds. The mind is a form of spirit or soul, and the body is drink. And that idea, unfortunately, ruled Western science for uh, hundreds of years. Fortunately, in the second half of the 20th century, that uh, idea was uh, put, uh, put away, terminated, by the growing awareness that our mind is at least partly, if not predominantly, a feature of our body. The more we learn about the way our mind works, the more we see that it's at least heavily if not exclusively dependent upon the function of our body. Just as an example, if you take a medication, it may change the way you think and feel. If you uh, are very dehydrated or very exhausted, it'll change the way you think or feel. So our minds are heavily dependent upon our body. And the more uh, science explores that integration, the more it finds that that integration is true. A big example that 
crossed my life uh, as a psychiatrist many years ago was when uh, post-traumatic stress disorder became a conscious focus of treatment. Post-traumatic stress disorder is as, as well known as oldest civilization. Everyone always knew that soldiers came home from combat and sometimes had difficulty re-entering uh, non-combatant life. But that became a very strong focus of American psychiatry after the Vietnam War. And one thing that happens to traumatized vets is that their mind and body remain integrated. And if, you're, if you've been heavily traumatized in your mind, your body remains dysregulated. If you've been heavily traumatized in your body, your mind remains dysregulated. So we learned that trauma is both in the mind and in the body. You can't separate them, can't treat someone, say, well, you were upset that you were being uh, shot at, but no one's shooting at you anymore. You're back home in the United States, so relax. But of course, that person's body has also gone through the trauma, so the treatment has to address their body as well. Now, mind and body integration has become the new doctrine that replaced the, the divergence of mind and body. Unfortunately, I want to say that that integration is somewhat limited, and mind-body integration is itself becoming a dogmatic problem. Let's look at some examples of that. If you're a nervous person, that may drive up your blood pressure. Anxiety drives up your blood pressure for the following reason. Anxiety is basically a good thing. It's an adaptation. For example, if we're uh, humble people walking around in the jungle looking for our food, and there's a lion, and there's two of us, and one person's anxious and the other person is calm, guess who's going to survive? <laughs> you want to be anxious. I noticed uh, uh, to get me here tonight, friends who were taking me, they uh, kept insisting that we get here earlier and earlier. You know, for a seven o'clock talk, first it was six, then it was 5.30. Everybody's anxious about the traffic. And I gather that if you're not, you never get here. <laughs> if they weren't anxious, I might still be in Massachusetts. <laughs> So anxiety is good, we need it, we want it. But anxiety is accompanied by high blood pressure. And the reason for that is, let's say you want to run away from a lion. You don't want to run away from a lion with relaxed, low blood pressure. <laughs> you want high blood pressure. So if you're anxious all the time for no good reason, say you're an anxious person, you have some problem with anxiety, you always feel like you're running away from a lion, but you're not you're going to be carrying high blood pressure around. That's doing you no good. You're not running away. And yet you have this source of potential danger to you. So somebody might say to you quite correctly, you might consider whether meditation could help lower your anxiety, and then it might lower your blood pressure. And that's a very good idea, which I, of course, believe in and support. But uh, uh, those of you who are doctors or, or Biological scientists will know, or many people know anyway, a lot of your blood pressure is regulated both by your kidneys and some of the glands, like the adrenal glands around the kidneys. 
So if you have constriction of your renal artery, that's a common cause of hypertension. You, as you get older, you may have some uh, uh, narrowing of the blood vessels. And if the narrowing is a renal artery, you'll get hypertension. And no amount of relaxation will take that away. So mind-body integration is an excellent thing. It has its limits. And there are some times where you have to fix the body by fixing the body. You can't fix the body by fixing the mind. And there are many uh, examples we could take where, to some degree, your mind can influence your body to some degree. It shouldn't be exaggerated. And the reason I'm addressing that is because we want to have a meditation that's realistic and honest rather than an inflated uh, overbelief. Another limitation on meditation is the belief that it's always good for everybody. That's not true. Let's take another example of someone who probably should not meditate uh, very unfortunately, but uh, very uh, usefully. When I was uh, giving this talk uh, earlier in the year at Yale, I was looking around for a vivid example I could use of this case where you might say to someone, maybe you shouldn't meditate. And that day on the front page of the New York Times, there was an article, it was a featured article, a young man had gone to Afghanistan. He was an exceptional soldier. He was an officer. He was very uh, responsible, felt very caring for his troops. Some of his troops were attacked and killed under his watch. He felt very guilty when he came home from the war. He couldn't adjust to the feeling of guilt and failure, and he ended up killing himself. Now, when this man came home from war, you don't want to say to him, why don't you meditate? Because, as I've described, when you meditate, many thoughts and feelings come up. So you don't want to say to him, why don't you allow these, these uh, crushing feelings to come up, and then why don't you meditate with them? So obviously there are times where a person shouldn't meditate, or there might be people who might not want to meditate, or there may be uh, a condition under which a person might want to meditate only in a limited way, and then later on they might meditate in a less limited way. The main idea is that meditation is not uh, a perfect cure for medical illness, and it's not a perfect cure for emotional distress. So we want to look at it realistically and, and ask ourselves where it's going to help us and where it's not likely to help us. When I first learned meditation, it happened in the following way. I had studied India in college, and I had heard that there was something called meditation. It did not exist anywhere that I knew of in the Western Hemisphere. I developed a fantasy that I would like to go to India, but in those days, so this would be back in the 60s, it was not that easy to get there. People did not travel by planes as they do today, and I didn't have the financial ability to just pick up and go to India. Um, so I didn't go. But when I was in medical school, a scholarship offer came up and I applied for it. And uh, I got a, a, a grant to go to India. And at that time, I became uh, somewhat familiar with Indian medical care, as, which included, to some degree, interest in meditation. I started that education but knew I wanted to go back. I went back and did my 
training in psychiatry. And after that, I had plans to go to India. Well, I was a typical male, so I met a nice young woman. But I said, don't get attached to me. I have to go back to India. And she said, what do you mean you have to go back to India? What do you mean we? So we got married and went to India and uh, found this Vipassana meditation tradition and took our first 10-day course in 1974. There are a few things I would like to emphasize that make Vipassana of interest to some people, not to everybody. One thing is, it's taught for free. I'm here for free. All the courses I've conducted are for free. And the main teacher uh, in the Vipassana tradition, which we practiced, Mr. Goenka, who's now deceased, but who was very alive and well in 1974, he made a cornerstone of his tradition, no money is made. Now, why is that important? That, that was uh, uh, that was even before Bernie Sanders was mayor of Burlington. So <laughs> why this emphasis all the way back then? Actually, the, the emphasis comes from ancient India, in which meditation was always a spiritual practice. I'm going to give my own definition of spiritual because the word spiritual covers a wide variety of different beliefs in, in different people. But one thing is spiritual means it moves from person to person for free. We all know that uh, running a restaurant is uh, a fun, noble, and rewarding profession. It's also very hard, but no one condemns it, that's for sure. Probably there's no one in this room who hasn't eaten many times, maybe hundreds of times in restaurants. So supposing on this coming Saturday night, you go to your friend's house, they serve you a meal, and it's just you're hanging out with them, you're watching the Mariners, and then at the end of the evening, they say, you owe me 40 bucks, and if you don't give me your credit card, I'm calling the police. <laughs> Why is it that we don't condemn the restaurateur for charging us money? but we feel our friend would be awfully weird to make that kind of comment. <laughs> and the answer is we understand that there's a difference between friendship and business. We don't condemn business. There's only uh, limited ways in which goods and services can flow from person to person. And one of those ways is commercial, and that's not bad and not to be condemned. I was a doctor for well over 30 years, and I charged money for it. That was my business. But meditation is different. It's not really a form of medicine, and it's not like running a restaurant. It's more like friendship. And keeping that feeling of friendship actually changes the biological basis with which you learn meditation. I'm going to go into that in a little more detail in a minute. But that's an interesting emphasis, that if you learn it for free, it changes the biological basis. That is, the, the basis in the body of you as you're learning it is going to be different. Another feature of Vipassana is that it's taught in 10-day courses. That's the hardest hurdle for many people 
who might otherwise be interested in meditation. Why 10 days? Well, 10 days is somewhat arbitrary, but um, it's a statement of the value of what you're learning. Meditation is something worth pursuing, a, a, an important step in life. So once again, we see different things. We see uh, some things that we want to learn in a one-hour lesson, and other things we go to the university for four years or eight years to learn. We give different weight to different learning experiences, and Vipassana is weighted to that first 10-day experience. As I said already, if you do meditate over a period of days, the uh, opening of awareness is dramatically changed. There's a kind of closure we can keep on our knowledge about ourselves for a period of time. But after a period of time, our ability to keep that closure is loosened, and our self-awareness and our self-acceptance and our non-judgmental relationship to ourself and our self-integration is vastly expanded, exponentially expanded in that longer period of time. So Vipassana is taught for free over a period of 10 days. Vipassana is also a transmission from the past. Vipassana is the word that was used to describe meditation by the Buddha. Vipassana is not Buddhism. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm just an ordinary person without any affiliation to Buddhism. But Vipassana is the teaching of the Buddha. So just like I came here in an airplane, but I'm not a Wright Brothers-ist. I just took an airplane. So I, I actually do feel grateful all the time to the Wright brothers, but I don't, I don't become a devotee. So one doesn't have to become a religious devotee to be aware that something is given to you from the past. So the feeling of receipt is very important. Why is that important? Because... When you feel that you're inventing something or that you're learning something that was invented in Esalen in 1969, you have a different feeling for it than when you feel you're getting something from the dawn of human experience. I started our conversation by saying meditation is the systematic cultivation of our natural function. And that, that cultivation and that natural function was always there and we are inheritors of a rich potential and a rich tradition. So that's a very different take on meditation. So the 10 days is a more serious uh, self-integration, and it's also a richer receipt of a cultural gift. When we use the word spiritual now, we're using the word for something that's given for free, that has a um, almost unplumbable depth of cultural experience and that has power and significance in your own life. Now what kind of power and significance? Meditation is a guide and can be used, doesn't have to be used of course, can be used as a lifetime guide. Now ideas can guide us and if ideas guide us, if you follow an idea for your life we call that a religion or a belief system. You keep believing in something and keep following where that belief leads you. Meditation is a beliefless guide. 
it has some religious-like quality in the sense that it's something you can use to guide you through life. But it is not like religion in the sense that there's no ideology that's guiding you. So the practice can guide you. How does the practice guide you? I use this example all the time. I say when uh, Susan and I are faced with a life choice, a small one or a big one, we start discussing it. Uh, we're unsure. Some disagreement comes up. What time? What flight should we take to Seattle? Or a big discussion like, well, we're older, no child in the home, uh, retired. How should we be living now? Big, huge topic or a small topic. We like to say, well, let's decide that after we meditate. And that may mean after we meditate for an hour. And in some cases, it may mean after we meditate for 10 days or for a month. What's the value of meditation in guiding that decision? Well, as we just described, meditation gives you more focus. It also allows for more richness and depth of the zoo or menagerie of thoughts inside of you, which will expose you to your own inner dialogue. I do want to retire. I don't want to retire. I'm afraid of retirement. I can't wait for retirement. It'll be a good thing. It'll be a scary thing. I have enough money. I don't have enough money. All that will be there in your mind as you're thinking that. And you gain a, it's like having a, 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 a greater well of thought and feeling. At the same time, meditation is not an effort to think. Every time you do think, you are also attending away from your thinking and attending back to the sensations of your body, which is the focus and the positive. Therefore, you're constantly disrupting your conscious thought pattern. Your conscious thought pattern is something like, I have enough money to take that vacation. And your unconscious thought process may be something like, maybe I do, maybe I don't, maybe I don't want to go there, maybe I do want to go there, maybe I should take a vacation earlier in the year, later in the year. And so you keep disrupting any one of those threads and allowing natural processes to keep bringing up new material while you're constantly trying to come back to your focus body sensations. Therefore, when you are finished meditating, you have a panorama, this uh, entire menagerie of thoughts, and you have the results of your non-conscious thinking to guide you. And that's a richer complex than your mere intentional thinking. If you do that over a longer period of time, the clarity that you get is increased. It's funny that it sounds like by increasing the amount of information, you might become more disorganized, but it generally happens the other way around. I said generally. And that is you get a conclusion that is built upon the spontaneous homeostatic, calming, self-accepting, non-critical, non-judgmental processes that you've cultivated in meditation. 
One of the nicest things that happens to people who do take a longer period to meditate, you're told now you're going to meditate and please try to concentrate on something like your breath or your body sensations and please don't try to think. And at the end of the time, people say, I just came up with a conclusion to a problem I've had for six months or 10 years or my whole life. People feel they solve problems that have hovered over them their whole life. And why? You were just told not to think. But I think we've just described the process of meditation well enough so that you understand that a richer well of thought and feeling with less judgment, with more interference against conscious processes, but more acceptance of non-conscious processes, lead you to clarity over many things that you fail to solve through conscious thinking. One other feature of meditation I want to bring up is that by this thought disruption, by uh, turning your attention back to your body if you're meditating in Vipassana, or turning your attention back to the awareness of breathing, which is also used in Vipassana and many other meditations, you're also making an effort to free your mind from the single most important prison that was built into us. So I've been praising our natural abilities, which I believe include the ability to meditate, just as we have the ability to regulate our temperature. But there are some problems with the human mind that have been revealed by cognitive psychology, as well as common sense. We know that human beings will tend to make certain errors. And we find those errors demonstrated in the laboratories of cognitive psychologists. And we find those errors demonstrated every time you watch the news. And the biggest cognitive error, the one that's made the most and is the greatest significance to and greatest threat to ourselves as individuals and to our human community, is the error of overconfidence. During our long evolution, it was helpful for animals, that means us, to become overconfident. Overconfidence means there's two guys standing there with uh, sharpened sticks. They're not that sharp, they sharpen them with a stone axe. And one guy's saying, uh, I don't think I can hunt lions, I'm just gonna fall down on the ground and cry. And the other guy's saying, yeah, I'm not that afraid of lions. So we earlier said it's good to have anxiety and recognize maybe you shouldn't deal with lions. On the other hand, we need some courage. We need some confidence. We need some overconfidence. We need the capacity to face very difficult things and to screw up our courage and believe we can do it. If you ask stockbrokers to predict how well they can uh, guess what the market will do. They all, everybody knows you can't predict perfectly. So you give a probability statement. And then you follow them up. All stockbrokers will overestimate their ability to predict the movements of the stock market. But wait a second, what about psychiatrists? If you do the same thing, you ask psychiatrists to predict, well, what will be the outcome of this patient's treatment and life after treatment? All psychiatrists will overestimate their ability to predict. 
that, that actually was done in studies even before I became a psychiatrist. And from the psychiatrist I met, it's still true today. <laughs> and that's true for all people in all situations. If you ask people to estimate their driving ability, all people are above average drivers. So where's the average people? I guess they evaporate at the end of the day. The worst part of this problem is that all people believe that their belief systems are true. All people believe they know the meaning of life and how planet Earth got here and uh, who's regulating the universe and which book is true and which philosophy is true. And all people believe they know how to regulate vast social systems like the United States government. Tremendous amount of what used to be called hubris, and we can call it overconfidence. Now, if you're meditating and you're constantly saying, I'm going to let go of that thought and come back to my sensations. I'm going to let go of that thought and come back to my sensations. The instructions are not to disbelieve your thoughts, but the instructions are to lighten the grip of conviction. If you can't lighten the grip of conviction, it's harder to meditate. If you can lighten the grip of conviction, if you can lighten your overconfidence into realistic confidence, it's easier to meditate. Meditation helps you lighten that grip. Lightening that grip helps you meditate. Of course, people are various, so there are groups that use meditation in the opposite way to uh, reduce your critical thinking and to encourage you to gullibly believe in something else. We hope no one will meditate that way. If you've meditated as I've described, learning it for free, receiving it as a gift from the past, taking it seriously, learning to focus a little bit better, becoming aware of yourself in greater depth, Accepting yourself, not using critical thinking, self-critical thinking, judgmental thinking. Allowing your mind to regulate the body to the degree that it can. Not giving over-belief to meditation and expecting it to heal things it can't heal. Not expecting it to be the panacea for all medical and physical problems. <clears throat> and lightening the grip of over-conviction. If you do that, you'll get the final effect and the, and the most important effect that I'd like to discuss in meditation. Most people who meditate, some people don't like it. They've got some huge worry or problem on their mind. It's not the right time for them to learn. But most people feel very comforted. It makes you feel good to meditate. And that's why meditation has grown so exponentially in the recent years. At our meditation centers, we can't uh, fulfill the need. People sign up more than we can serve them. And meditation is spreading in many other forms as well. That good feeling comes from all those factors that I've been describing. And when you open your eyes, there's a, a common experience, not every time, not every person common experience to feel very good. And it's not just a good feeling, it's a special good feeling 
And I've given it, I just made up a term when I was thinking of this particular format of talking to people. I call it the great embrace. It's like you want to reach out and embrace everything. I first uh, mentioned that in New York and I cautioned everybody, don't do that on the subway. <laughs> in Seattle, probably you can do it. You feel a beneficent congress between you and the surrounding world. I'm not saying, and I hope nobody imagines, that meditation cures everything or takes away all of the horror of our world, the wars and suffering and the illnesses and uh, poor judgments of our governments. No one should be so naive, no one could be so naive as to imagine all that is gone. And meditation hasn't blinded me to all of that. But it does give you this harmonious, beneficent feeling, this feeling of a great embrace of the world. And that, rather than blinding you, hopefully can be used to make you a, an agent of that feeling state so that you can bring more of that feeling state into your relationships, more of that feeling state into your work, more of that feeling state into your relationship with yourself. For those of you who do know something about the Buddha, that feeling was called metta, M-E-T-T-A. doesn't matter if you don't know that. But it was the signature of meditation properly done. When you meditate properly, it should make you feel good. That's the goal. That's why you do it. You feel, we said, cultivating inner peace. And you could say feeling the great embrace of the world. I feel that we've lived in a very exceptional time, very interesting time, when Albert Einstein invented general relativity at the very dawn of the century, he thought there was only one static galaxy. There's no elementary school child who doesn't know more than Albert Einstein. We've learned within one century, actually it didn't, wasn't until the late 1920s or the early 1930s, that Edwin Hubble proved there are other galaxies. And now every silly Star Wars movie has to have a lot of other galaxies in it. <laughs> Our knowledge of the universe is not uh, changed a lot. It's revolutionized beyond imagination. We're different than all the other people in human history in our knowledge. And that knowledge also applies to our bodies. When I uh, started college, knowledge of DNA was about 10 or 15 years old. Now I go for a walk, I have a very funny looking dog, mixed breed dog that we got at the animal shelter. He's got big ears and short little legs and huge furry tail. He's quite a combination. And I frequently walk up to people and they go, why don't you DNA sequence your dog? <laughs> so in my short lifetime, we've gone from an era where DNA wasn't even known to uh, a tool that you can use on your dog. <laughs> we need to be open and receptive rather than closed and overconfident. This hopefully will be an era of increasing open-mindedness, less clinging to the narrow beliefs of the past 
and more opening to the magic of what is being exposed to us in our sciences, whether they're cosmological, biological, or anything else. And uh, we hope that meditation will be a tool for greater beneficent emotions and open-mindedness.